You know, the funny part is, I, I knew I was going to knock that over. I, I, just, I just knew, and I thought, oh, that'd be funny, wouldn't it? You get up for your first, your first sermon, and you knock. It didn't break, so it's, it's going better than I thought already. Um, now, this morning, I have the privilege of, of preaching. If you don't know who I am, my name is Lawrence Klingsheim. Last week uh, was the installation, so I guess I'm official. And the best way to break in the new guy is to give him the pulpit for a Sunday. And so this morning, uh, I do have the privilege of sharing about Christmas. Is it? It's too high? All right. I wasn't sure. Uh, Of sharing about Christmas, and specifically about Christmas miracles. Now, that's one of those phrases that we use. uh, It's one of those that's gotten into our culture, even. And so we talk about things as Christmas miracles all the time. Um, To call it a Christmas miracle has for a long time simply meant that something about this season can make the impossible come true. Now, you look to our culture, it's because um, it's just something about the season that's different. Whether it's um, against all odds that you make it home for Christmas, that's a a Christmas miracle. Uh, When you take the entire family to Paris for Christmas and accidentally leave one child home (laughs) by himself, and everything turns out all right, it's a Christmas miracle. And as common as that phrase has become, the reality is that Christmas is a miracle, that it's, it's not something which just happened, it's not something that we just celebrate, but it's as we look back at the first Christmas, at the birth of Christ, that without a miracle or two or three, it would never have happened. And so this morning we're going to be reading from Matthew and focusing on chapter 2. Uh, But because we are at that season, I want to take a little bit and and read from chapter 1 as well, as we read about the account of Jesus' birth and how God's faithfulness was revealed again and again as His promises proved true. So this is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18, and then we're going to go through that and all the way through chapter 2. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. 
When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now before we go any further, let's pray together. God, we thank you for today. And I thank you that you are good. I thank you that we have the opportunity this morning to celebrate together as a body and as a family that You sent Your Son for us. As we go to Your Word, as we study it now, Lord, would You prepare our hearts? Would Your Spirit speak to us as it is at work in each of us that believe? And God, may You be glorified in our worship, even as we study Your Word, as we apply it, and as we are transformed by it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, I think we can start by focusing a little bit on Herod. Now, Herod is an interesting person in history. 
Um, he's called Herod the Great, and he's called that because uh, throughout his reign, he did a number of great things. He, he built things. He, he led things. And by at least the historical accounts, he was considered great. Now, that's the historical account. If you were a Jew under Herod, you might not have felt the same way. Uh, specifically, he was called king over the Jews in Matthew, and yet he really wasn't much of a king. And as history goes, his father was highly favored by those in Rome, and so when Herod got to a certain age and political positions were being handed out, Herod looked really good. Now, he wasn't a Hebrew, and yet he was king over the Jews. He, he was not from that land. He didn't follow those laws. And so to Rome, he seemed like a great option. And to the Hebrews, uh, not so much. In fact, he did a number of things that, uh, even though he was given authority by Rome, did not win him favor. And there's all sorts of things like he had a wife and child that he might have exiled, and then he might have gotten married again to someone he was related to. But, you know, small things. <laughs> little things that, that wouldn't ever ruin your reputation. Uh, and so if we read into that, there's conversations between him and John the Baptist, and that starts to lay the foundation for things that come later on. And yet, here Herod is, given authority to govern and keep the Jews controlled under Roman law. Israel was oppressed. Rome had swept all over and had established its reign in places near and far. Even the language had changed to the point where uh, it wasn't necessarily Hebrew that people were speaking. Aramaic was still popular. And yet the most popular language of the day was Greek. And as Hellenistic culture swept over the land and the language followed, the Jews were, were struggling in a lot of ways. They, they were not in control of their own government. They were not in control of their own destiny. They couldn't even control what language was being spoken uh, in their homes. And so when we start looking at Herod, we have to understand, um, Scripture seems to paint him in, in one particular way, but he's very complex. And we're going to see some of that as we look at the Scripture this morning. Now, in verse 1 of Matthew 2, it says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Herod the king uh, was there, and wise men came asking about this king who had been born to the Jews. And this is not something which sits well with Herod. In fact, Scripture is very clear here. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All sorts of things are going on. As the wise men are reporting, a star has risen. This star apparently marks the birth of the king of the Jews, and strangers have come, not just to, play, to pay homage, but to give worship. Now, if you're the sitting king, and you hear this from strangers from the east, we've come because we've seen the star that marks the birth of the king of the Jews, and we've come to worship him, this would be a disturbing thing on a few different levels. Uh, the first one is that on a personal level, here's somebody who has a better right than you do to be king over the Jews. This is somebody who... At, it isn't Rome putting you in authority as a puppet king over another country. This is someone who is born by rights, descended from kings, and rightfully king over Israel. But not only that, they've not just come to honor him, they've come to worship him. 
This is something greater than an earthly king. And so for Herod, this would have been disturbing on more than a few levels, on a personal level, on a religious level, especially when your job is to keep people in control. And so Herod asks a few questions, as I think any of us would. The first one he asks, he gathers all the chief priests and the scribes together, and he asks a very simple question. Um, where is this Christ to be born? Do you, do you know where this would happen? Now, it implies some understanding, at least by these religious leaders, of who this child was supposed to be. And they know enough, they, they remember enough from the prophet that they say this, that it's in Bethlehem of Judea. For so is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they give him that answer. Now the question is whether Herod knew the context of that verse. Now, for us, living a few thousand years later, it's good for us to remember that while we just hear a couple of verses, um, that's all it jogs in our memory. But for the chief priests and the scribes who would have studied the Scripture, it's a lot like when, when we remember a phrase and we realize, oh, but that phrase is actually part of a bigger thing. And here they're remembering Scripture that has some very specific language. And it comes from Micah chapter 5, and it reads like this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And maybe it was just because they knew the context that they decided not to read the rest of these messianic overtones of, of a ruler who would come, who would overthrow oppressive governments, who would lead them, and they would be great. And so these descriptions of oppression, a coming king born to call his people home and lead them in strength, in glory, those are charged words. And if Herod knew them, then the rest of his actions make a lot of sense. The first thing he does following that information is he summons the wise men. And there's a few things that we need to note about this. He summons them in secret. He doesn't make any broad proclamations. He doesn't say too much about it. But in secret, he calls them to try to get more information from them. And at least the purpose that we see here in Matthew is that it's for them, for Herod at least, to learn when did this star appear? When did this sign that people from, from far off have noticed and are following, when did this appear? And we also see that he did this under false pretenses. That he asked that, that he might go and worship the child himself, even though he had no intention of doing anything like that. In fact, uh, Scripture is pretty clear that he just wanted to know um, where he needed to go to deal with this potential problem. 
all the while gathering information and avoiding suspicion. And what does he do with that information? Well, after he tells them to go and find the child and come back, the wise men go a different direction. And he's furious. He's angry because this plan that he concocted, this secret thing, this, this way that he was going to deal with this issue didn't work. That those who were supposed to get him information didn't, all because they were warned by an angel. And so he thought, okay, I need to find a solution to this problem. This is, this is going to be a king. This is going to be a religious figure. This is going to be something I can't control, even if it's not true. If the people think it's true, I'm going to lose all control. So what do I have to do to deal with this? And Herod picks a terrible, terrible solution. He has every boy under the age of two in the region killed at least according to the time frame given to him. Now we can learn a few things from Herod here. He was threatened when these strangers from the east arrived with this strange news. He was not well versed in God's word, but why would he need to be when he had the chief priests and scribes at his beck and call? He was deceptive and he was a monster committing genocide, infanticide out of anger and, and desperation to keep his throne. Imagine how well his subjects loved him then. Imagine the reaction of the chief priests and scribes when they learned what their service to this puppet king had led to. If we keep track of all the miracles here, the first is that God is bringing about what He promised through the prophets. Here is the one that He promised would come. He's about to be born. Something is about to change. And the second is that God's people actually recognize this for now. But as we're about to see, the work of God is apparent in every step that follows. Now, we need to talk a little bit about the wise men. Um, they're given a, a rather generous term, wise men. Uh, sometimes it's translated ma the Magi, those from another country. And there's a little bit of debate about who these men were. They might have been uh, astronomers who simply observed the stars, who, who looked for signs. Uh, whether, whether the sign preceded faith or faith preceded the sign is not exactly clear, but here are men who have come from the East, uh, not exactly sure where from. Uh, we're not sure how they knew all of this or necessarily why they're called wise. But there are a few observations that could be made about them. The first is that they knew the prophets, that when they recognized the signs, they knew that it was pointing to the Messiah. They knew it was pointing to uh, more than just a normal birth. They knew the sign of the birth of Christ, and they were willing to travel a great distance to see this king. It wasn't just a short trip for them. It would have been something that was substantial, something that was costly, something that was, uh, for them, really significant. They desired to worship him. They were overjoyed to see this child. And as they were spoken to, Sorry, they were spoken to in the same way as a number of others, in a dream. And they had faith enough to obey what they heard in that dream. Now, the wise men do mention their motive, and we see four things that demonstrate their devotion. First, they search diligently. 
They rejoiced when they saw the place where the star came to rest. In fact, Scripture says this emphatically, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I love that phrase because it's, it's not unclear what's going on. They rejoiced exceedingly. That enough would be pretty emphatic. But they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They fell down and worshipped Jesus and they gave gifts worthy of a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we've heard a lot, I think, over the years about what those things were. Gold, that's pretty simple. Frankincense and myrrh, we might be a little less familiar with. Uh, So just to help, those are aromatic resins. They're used in incenses, in perfumes. And for them to make an offering like that was more than just a kingly offering. This was an offering that spoke volumes of who this child was. Not just a king, but worthy of worship. Their dream leads them away from Herod and they depart back to their own country. And at this point, the miracles are starting to stack up. God is doing what He said He would do. God is fulfilling promises given through the prophets. God is stepping in and interceding. When Herod would have his own way, God intercedes. When men would have their own way, God intercedes. Now, one other thing that is probably important for us to note is that nowhere in this passage is Joseph referred to as Joseph's son. Now, that's interesting if you read from Matthew chapter 1, as it gives the genealogy of Jesus, and it traces Joseph's genealogy. And yet, in Scripture, in Matthew, it doesn't describe Jesus at all as Joseph's Son. Five times they mention the child and his mother, and even though Joseph is mentioned, he doesn't hold the title of father. In fact, that is what God claims for himself. Uh, This is from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering, uh, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will come not in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when He roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes." declares the Lord. This narrative is being built up into something only possible by the work of God. You have a child that is conceived by the Holy Spirit. You have the fulfillment of prophecy. You have divine intervention. You have guidance that leads people toward fulfilling prophecy. God is at work again and again and again and again. 
We see this in Jeremiah. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young man and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord, my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I, bes- I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And just a few verses later, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, the last of the quotations from Matthew chapter 2 isn't actually a quotation at all. Scripture reads, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, to give you an idea of what Matthew meant, the prophets shared an idea of what this coming Savior would look like. What... Israel in the time of Christ had forgotten that, yes, Christ is the conquering king. He's the, he's the one who comes, who sets his people free. And yet it, it didn't look exactly like they thought it would look. He, he didn't raise up armies and defeat Rome. He didn't uh, throw off all of those bonds of oppression. Instead, Scripture also mentions that he would be meek. 
that he would be lowly and despised. The Nazarenes were not liked. They were not wanted. And if one name did not belong to the promised Savior in the eyes of the Hebrews, it was Nazarene. In fact, in the book of John, one asks a question and says, what good ever came out of Nazareth? And it points to Christ as as the disciples have been describing, this is a Hebrew unlike any Hebrew. This is a man unlike any man. And yes, he came out of Nazareth. Now, we forget sometimes that the Bible is not just happy stories of everything working out perfectly. There is heartbreak. There is tragedy. Even as the birth of Christ is happening, and some are looking forward to it, there are plots to stop it. There are, are plots for, for murder. It, none of this is going smoothly. And we tend to come back year after year with the same tame story of a baby who was born and didn't cry, or a happy family that was really comfortable with livestock. But by definition, the reality is that the birth of Christ is impossible. Jesus could not have been conceived in the way the Bible says He was. His birth could not have happened the way the Bible says it did. There could, have, could not have been a star that the wise men could follow. They could not have dreamt of Herod's plans or the danger that they needed to avoid. They could not have escaped the massacre that would have snuffed out this still young hope. According to human reason, to human logic, to probability, to possibility, none of this is possible. And that's the point. God was doing the impossible in order to demonstrate even in these things that Christ was no ordinary child. That this was no ordinary birth. Everything from the conception of Jesus to the circumstances surrounding His birth, to the threat of danger to His life that would follow Him to the cross, all of that point to this being no ordinary son, no ordinary leader or teacher. Prophecy pointed to Jesus and found their fulfillment in Him. Miracles proclaimed the hand of God at work even in Christ's earliest moments. And it's good that we remember these things. It's good that we shake off that blanket of familiarity that dulls our senses to the strangeness and wonder of Jesus' birth. This was no ordinary son, no empty promise. And as the whole region was being stirred and troubled at what was to come, others were hearing of what was to come from another source. This is from Luke 2. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. May we all be reminded this week of what it is that we gather and celebrate, that God fulfilled His promises to send a Savior, His own Son, to be the Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank You again for today. And as we sing songs, as we remember, as we celebrate together, 
And as we look forward to next Sunday with anticipation, God, may we gather together like the wise men did, rejoicing in great joy. May your name be proclaimed. May the hope of Christ remind each of us of how incredible your love is of how impossible it might be that you would save us from our sins. And yet it's true. God, lead us and guide us. And may your praises be sung by your people this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.